Okay, welcome back everybody to the CFC 365 podcast. Now, I know we haven't done an episode in a while. Um, decided to take a little break after the summer. You know, we did a, a few episodes with some journalists and some other people like Paul Canneville, but we have got back on the podcast today, Ben Jacobs, who was the first ever guest on this podcast. Really excited to have him back. Ben, thanks for coming on and talking Chelsea again. Yeah, absolutely. The first when there was pressure this time, maybe slightly less pressure because I'm not the number one. Yeah, exactly. Less pressure. I'm just going to have a general chat. We've got some subjects to go through. So without further ado, no wasting time. Let's get on with it. Ben, you put out a tweet the other day about the all or nothing series that Chelsea or Todd Bowley, I should say, could potentially be interested in. Now, is this sort of, I know it's fresh news, but when did you first hear about this? Um, the time frame, do you reckon it could happen if it does happen? Maybe next season? I don't, I don't imagine they'd record it midway through this season. But yeah, what's your intel on that? So this is coming from the Amazon end and they believe that there is an appetite with the new Chelsea owners to be involved in an all or nothing. There's a lot of decision making around an all or nothing. It can depend on the manager at the time and obviously the stability or success of a club. But generally speaking, Amazon have had Chelsea on their radar historically and they did actually hold some talks with the club and the idea was roundly dismissed and the Roman Abramovich era and those connected to the club during it had absolutely no idea whether or not it would have commercial worth but more importantly they didn't want to share any secrets so it was a complete non-starter but that tells you that Chelsea were there on the list and Amazon obviously moved on and they did Arsenal and their top priority over the course of the last year or so has been been to get Newcastle United to sign for the 2023-2024 season. But there's some challenges because Eddie Howe's built a good thing and he doesn't necessarily want to disrupt his dressing room with cameras. And more importantly, PIF, the majority owner at Newcastle, have some reservations around the coverage. And I think that Amazon tend to enter into these deals with quite strict guidelines as to what they can film. And if they're not given the editorial freedom to address any relevant issues, including obviously Newcastle's Saudi-led ownership, then they might walk away. So there's nothing signed yet with Newcastle. And as I understand it from senior Amazon sources, that has prompted extra interest in Chelsea. So there's no indication yet as to what specific season it would be for, but Chelsea are back on Amazon's radar. And Chelsea's owners have been on record now in more than one interview as saying that they like the idea of commercial growth and they think there are untold stories. I've heard that phrase now on and off record from a number of different senior Chelsea executives, untold stories. And they haven't referenced all or nothing from what I've heard anyway, but off record it's been spoken about when I've held conversations and also drive to survive has been mentioned too, which again is fly on the walls. So I think that there's a pattern here that Chelsea's ownership group want to be able to take fans and a wider audience behind the scenes and they believe that there's commercial value in that but make no mistake at the moment the desire to get Chelsea on board comes from the Amazon end and they believe they can convince the new American-led consortium to buy into that but they haven't yet held any significant talks in fact nothing in a formal sense has happened at all so it's one to watch over the coming weeks and months as to whether Amazon do reach out in any kind of formal sense but certainly Chelsea is back in the mix and like I said before 
it was in the mix under the Abramovich era as well. They really wanted to delve behind the scenes and show what Chelsea was like, but Abramovich and other more hands-on day-to-day executives at that point were having absolutely none of it. Yeah, absolutely. I find that really interesting. I wasn't going to come on to this till later on, but I think it ties in quite nicely with the sort of commercial aspect and, and growth and revenue and that sort of um, that sort of aspect. So, Jose Feliciano, who is kind of like the silent, um, I guess, silent guy in the, in this sort of consortium, at least with Clear Lake. You know, you've got Todd Bowley and then you've got Bedade Bali, who I remember you first mentioned me, to me was more of the like sports slash big football fan that you'd heard. And that's kind of come true because you've seen he's been kind of heading up the sort of um, presence from Clear Lake with Todd Bowley, obviously um, separate from Clear Lake. So Jose Feliciano did an interview or was a part of a, a wide range of interviews with Bloomberg Live. And um, he kind of said, you know, we're trying to build a long-term sustainable business, kind of along those sort of, that sort of record. They're trying to put in place building blocks to have a great business in three, five, seven years. He said that Chelsea really should increase the revenue and should increase the growth, especially the Chelsea women's team. So what I want to ask Ben is like, of course, could this sort of Amazon all or nothing series be a part of that because or what else have you heard or what else do you think could be sort of in line to to maximize Chelsea's revenue growth because as we know Roman Abramovich you know he, he was just there to to sort of <laughs> kind of fund the team he didn't really go into those you know aspects of of you know like deep revenue growth or different business ideas like he was just he was just there to support the club and win as many trophies as possible so what do you think these owners have, you know, up their sleeve in terms of, of revenue growth? Because I think one of my, like, not issues, but one of my, like, concerns, and I'm pretty sure they're smart enough to know this as well, is that obviously, even though Chelsea's a big club, we're not like a Manchester United where we can just produce revenue out of nothing. Um, we are a club, again, that I feel like our fans, um, especially being a part of the fan base, we like to scrutinise every little thing. So it's like, I remember when... Um, when Tom Ricketts, who was obviously the Ricketts family, wanted to buy Chelsea, uh, you know, everyone, all the Chelsea fans were going into depth, looking at what they did with the Cubs and everything. And one of the things they introduced was the marquee network. And I just remember Chelsea fans saying, well, look, you know, try and do that with us sort of thing, almost like challenging them to, to put like revenue streams in front of us if, if we didn't like it. So what do, you, what do you think Chelsea's owners have in place or um, are thinking in terms of how to actually grow this um, Chelsea Football Club in terms of revenue without upsetting the fan base? Well, I think in terms of not upsetting the fan base, it's just being transparent and open about it and having dialogue with the fan base. And that's in part why Danny Finkelstein and Barbara Sharone are on the board because they're Chelsea fans and their primary task is ultimately to liaise with the fan base. So I think before any significant decisions are made, particularly in relation to things like the stadium redevelopment, the fan base will be consulted and heard and maybe with some decisions given a kind of de facto golden share, especially if any decisions relate to Chelsea's heritage and history. But revenue streams is a really very broad and to kind of determine the direction that the club are heading in they first need to build the model and the model can be looked at both on a football and a brand level. And each of them have got commercial revenue streams that spurn from them. So if we start with the football side and growing revenue, once you've got a model, 
you add other clubs to that model. And in doing so, you become bigger as a football group and entity and thus of more appeal to sponsors, but also you start to develop a network and pathways and in doing so footballers themselves can be commodities. And that word is usually referred to as more of a derogatory term, but ultimately you have to be in a position where you have your reliable network to find talent and thus you stand a greater chance of landing young players, male and female, and hopefully your group allows them pathways through to the first team. But if it doesn't, then because you've created levels and structures, levels being you can go to other clubs before Chelsea and structures being a plan for their coaching and their development on and off the field, you then will still raise the value of each individual that comes through a system like that. So if they don't work out, you still make money from them. And that is ultimately a revenue stream. And then if you look at the brand side of things, they will obviously be trying to globalize the brand even further and utilizing the women's team as part of that too. And with the women's team, there's a huge potential to gain even more growth. And as Chelsea create a model, they can leverage the Chelsea brand. And the advantage of that on the women's side is that the Women's Super League is growing amazingly. So that's going to help with revenue growth, but it's still not the top league in the world. But Chelsea is one of the top brands in the world. So if you're going to NWSL in America or Women's USL, which is another league out there, you might twin with a club, you could even buy a club. And then on the women's side, you would get all of the amazing facilities because a lot of female footballers go through collegiate soccer and then they end up at a club that actually are quite well structured at the moment in terms of pathways. So Chelsea may be in a position where they can ultimately use an NWSL club to their advantage. It wouldn't remotely surprise me, by the way, and I'm only speculating here, if Chelsea end up actually entering their brand into the NWSL in the long run. It's just something to watch. It's not something anybody has told me at the club, but I know Barcelona looked to enter into the NWSL as Barcelona, and there was no issue with them starting a team. But unfortunately, from Barcelona's point of view, when they tried it, there were some conflicts between the NWSL commercial guidelines for brands you affiliate with, for kit that you have to wear, that conflicted with Barcelona's own commercial obligations so they were never able to follow that through but the fact that Barcelona were looking at that tells you that there'll be other clubs doing the same thing so that's only just something to put out there a little bit left fields but again that can lead to commercial growth and as importantly on the women's side there is not a total overlap between NWSL and WSL seasons, which means in the gaps, because the WSL and WSL players don't play as many games as their male counterparts, there's plenty of players at Chelsea that with only 12 teams in the WSL would be quite prepared to go short-term to an NWSL team and the other way around. And we obviously saw during COVID when there was a delay to the NWSL, a big influx of American stars coming into the WSL. So there's a lot of potential there. And then if you look away from the football side, 
you've got all kinds of things that Chelsea would be able to do as they globalise their brand. There's the stadium redevelopment. And if the club becomes more modernised, then that is of appeal. They potentially could even expand, renovate, even replace in the long-term Cobham. And if you look at Tottenham's training facility, if you look at Manchester City's university campus-like facility, if you look at Leicester's new facility, these things aren't just great for your players. They're also ultimately commercial ventures because you can build show pitches and you can hire them out and so on so it's all about modernizing the club and again that leads to revenue and then on the more front-facing side there might be things like all or nothing but if we don't see them go into media partnerships to tell fly on the wall stories I still think that you'll see Chelsea bring on board more global partners in other areas whether that's through medical departments and partnerships with data companies to work on injury prevention, whether that is selling parts of the club to innovative partners that are able to use Chelsea's brand to develop things that are maybe a bit newer and more evolving and obviously Chelsea benefit from that. So Manchester City have done that, by the way, at their training facility, just to give you a more specific example, because that might sound a bit cryptic to people listening. Manchester City have put, with an Israeli data firm, 360-degree cameras in their training facility, which means that the company that have developed those type of prototypes in order to use live data are able to affiliate with a top brand and ultimately they pay for that. So that's where there's the commercial opportunity for Manchester City and Manchester City are in a win-win position because they've got an exclusivity over that deal and they get all of the data and maybe it helps them in terms of their analysis and Chelsea could look at things like that. But also if you allocate newer areas, so everyone thinks of Chelsea at the moment as the first team, the women's team, the academy and the brand, but they could go down a gamification route and look to get a firmer footing in esports. They could look for cross-sports partnerships in order to make money. They could look to stage things at Stamford Bridge, especially after it's redeveloped that are outside of football spheres. And each of these things, again, modernizes the club. It opens it up to new audiences and it develops new streams of revenue. So all of this will be within Chelsea's thinking. But first and foremost, they have to look to build their football model and their business model, football model, Bowley leading on alongside Berdag Agbali, and then the business model is largely being led by Glick, but also to some extent Johnny Goldstein, who's a board member as well, because he's taking a large lead on the renovation of the stadium. Yeah, a lot of information there. So thanks for that. I didn't even think about like the esports and all that sort of sector, but I remember. Um, looking at Todd Bowley's portfolio, and I think he is it DraftKings or that there's something to do with um, esports that he's involved in as well. I think on a side project, so that would be very very interesting as well. Um, being a big fan of gaming and that sort of thing, but I think one of the most important and interesting things you said there, first off, the stadium redevelopment. Johnny Goldstein obviously um, had an interview as well. Um, I think it was last week. Can't remember who with, but it was an interview, um, and he said like he'd be able to give this interview a, a kind of a more sort of a good idea in sort of 12 months time because obviously that the planning process and, and everything is really really detailed and in depth um but again i think the most important thing you said there or interesting thing for me is obviously you mentioned how city in general have like multiple clubs they have like a broader network away from just manchester city the city football group they have 
many, many different clubs. And we've had those stories come out in the last sort of two to three weeks that Todd Bowley really wants to buy clubs, especially in um, Portugal as well. So do you know any more on that situation as, as things stand? Do you think that Chelsea will, um, or Todd Bowley will buy a club sooner rather than later to sort of, you know, start that project of, of obviously sending youth players out there and obviously we're going to come on to the structure but again Joe Shields who is, is going to join Chelsea it looks like um, he's obviously very very good at, at, at eyeing talent and things like that do you think that situation with the sort of network of clubs will will gain even more sort of traction in the next few weeks yeah, absolutely. Before we come on the model as well, for those interested, Bowley does, as you correctly say, have a big in in both fantasy sports and esports. So DraftKings is his fantasy sports company, but he also owns an esports organization called Cloud9. So that's, again, it. that's the one. I, I know them as well, and that's really poor on my part. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that will all be revenue streams. It will all be opening Chelsea up to new audiences. It will all be that intersect between how do you gamify actual sport and then at the same time how do you bring sport into gamification and they're two different things because you can be in a brand new stadium that like Tottenham's is more digitally savvy and then you can use elements of gamification not specifically esports to improve fan engagement and you can have crossover between esports and actual sport in the same way that Chelsea teased their third kit using FIFA 23. And you can just bring your brand into esports. In other words, even if it's not FIFA, which people in football assume is esports, but Call of Duty and a lot of these other games tend to be the primary ones played. So you can obviously have Chelsea teams and representatives and you can move your brand into those areas. So all of this will be in Bowley's thinking. And then with the model, it's absolutely clear that they want to simultaneously look for clubs and recruit internally. And the reason why they're looking for so many people within their team is because they don't just want to be Chelsea. They want to be a group led by Chelsea. So absolutely, they are looking to buy other clubs. And this is a onus that has been placed on Glick specifically to go out there and find a list of suitable clubs in conjunction with advisors and third parties. And Chelsea are looking in Portugal. That's absolutely true. But a number of other places as well. Belgium is one area. Brazil is another. And France in the lower leagues is one to look out for. And even though a lot of talk was about Chelsea's failed bid for Santos, although it wasn't, as I understand it, as advanced or aggressive as perhaps has been reported in other places, but they certainly inquired about it. Socio is still the one to watch. And it's been widely reported that Chelsea have had an interest and the official public line is that that particular club has rejected Chelsea's approach. But as I understand it, that's not entirely dead in the water yet. It's absolutely true that the current ownership group there had shown some opposition to being bought. But I don't think Chelsea have entirely given up on that one. So it's just one to watch. I'm not saying there's a high likelihood of it happening at this stage, but they have not entirely, as I understand it, given up on that one yet. And the only complication there 
is I think at the time of recording, they're fourth in the league. So they're on track for promotion and that could complicate things a little bit as well. And this is what's really interesting, that when you buy a European club that as per the Red Bull model could come through the leagues and end up playing in Europa League or Champions League, you have to kind of determine what's right for your group. Do you want a group where eventually if you start in Europe, each of the clubs could grow and end up in top European competitions, or do you want a club that's always going to be lower league and you put your time and energy on the academy and the coaching? And it's sort of catch-22 because the better job you do, the better the team will do, the more it will fly through the leagues and then the more UEFA complications you've got. But it's absolutely true to say that Chelsea are actively looking at clubs. That's not to say that they have a hole burning in their pocket to buy today or tomorrow but maybe what a lot of people don't understand is that buying a football club can take time. So even if you allocated a team right now, it doesn't mean you're going to get them, even if you work around the clock for the best part of nine months. And Chelsea are probably just shortlisting, making inquiries, trying to do market value from the outside in. And then if they find willing buyers, they'll then have to do due diligence and work out whether or not they wish to make a purchase. And it may be no good to Chelsea, by the way, just to have a club out the blue at this stage. They may prefer to have more informal partnerships so they can kind of try before they buy, or they may need to just get the hires internally first so they can actually determine what the model is going to be. Because if you don't yet have a sporting director, if you don't yet have a structure, these type of people might want to input. But I think the reason why it's getting out there in the press at the moment and it feels like Bowley wants to buy sooner rather than later is really just because Glick had already done a lot of this diligence before with a guy called John Textor, who's at Leon now. And Textor and Glick were working together because I think, as I told you before, when maybe Paqueta came up with a variety of different links, Textor feels like Leon can challenge PSG. And he believes the best way to do that is to develop a model and have other clubs affiliated to Leon as well. So Glick and Textor were working together. And as a consequence of that, when Glick then joined Chelsea, he sort of had some element of background to this. And from my understanding anyway, Textor was really working in that capacity with Glick more as a Crystal Palace investor, but you can start to see the connections already that Textor at Leon, Textor at Palace, Textor looking to have ins at different clubs. So he turns to Glick and they work together for months and months and months. And then because Glick's obviously been at the City Group as well, he's suddenly in a perfect position to know what's out there in the market and what's feasible. So I think this is why Chelsea feel ahead in some senses. And I know that Textor himself was a little bit miffed almost. I don't think he was particularly upset or angry, but I think there was just almost a wry smile from Textor that now Glick's just using a lot of the legwork spent working with him to the benefit of Chelsea, which is a perfectly normal thing to do. And everybody does this. You go from one job into another job and you take your contact book across. But Glick has already done a fair amount of 
operational legwork, particularly in Europe, to present options of clubs that Chelsea might invest in or have partnerships with in some capacity. And as a consequence, even though there's been a lot of drama and uncertainty at Chelsea over the course of the last five or six months since this new ownership have come in, both good and bad, behind the scenes, it's a lot calmer. It's a lot more structured. They've got a lot more burning fires than perhaps people realise. So the focus is obviously on the recruitment, transfers that have come in, failed targets, Tuchel's sacking and so on. But behind the scenes, on an operational level, there's very much a plan. And as I said a moment ago, it's a lot more calmer than perhaps fans in particular, especially on social media, think it is. Yeah, you mentioned a really good point there earlier on in your in your answer about the time that it does actually take to buy a football club. And I think Chelsea was, I don't know historically, but it seemed like one of the, just in terms of when it was done, it seemed like, you know, the time frame was one of the fastest acquisitions, especially of a big club um, in the modern history. And, and even when I was sort of, you know, covering the news and everything, you know, news aggregation and everything. I thought that it took so, so long, but actually it was one of the quickest sales. So, um, yeah, for you guys listening, we may not actually complete a purchase of a football club for a while, several months down the line, even if we are, as Ben said, actively looking and holding maybe informal discussions or, or jotting down teams that we may want to bid for eventually. So, yeah, really good answer there, Ben. Now we're going to move on to the sort of overall structure, as you've mentioned, that Chelsea are trying to build. Going a little bit more in depth, um, I mean, yeah, this is definitely one of the most sort of popular questions I've received as well. Now I'm just looking. So let's go through one by one then, because I think various outlets and sources are reporting that Chelsea could have up to three or four sort of um, hires, appointments, I guess. So obviously the first one that... I mean, maybe you was actually going to explain a little bit more about uh, Joe Shields from Southampton. Um, he looks to be coming in as the, what is it? Is it the head of recruitment? And obviously we've got Christoph or Christopher Vivelle, who is in talks for the technical director. So that would be kind of Petacek's role that he left, um, that sort of job title. And then also, Ben, um, Chelsea still want to have a sporting director. Now, what is your information on each of these areas? Um, go one by one. And probably, I mean, the sporting director one for me, um, what I've been seeing and hearing is that Todd Bowley does like this role still. And, you know, I think, I mean, I mean maybe, it's just speculating, but maybe he does wait for a Michael Edwards or something. Maybe is is that the case? Or, yeah, what, what do you know about each of these areas? Because it's definitely a popular question that my followers want to know. Well, let's start with the sporting director, which is still vacant. The first thing to say is that believe I exclusively reported three weeks or so ago is Todd Bowley's very comfortable as interim sporting director. But the fact that Chelsea thought they were going to get Freund and are still holding talks with candidates tells you that Bowley is quite prepared to step aside for the right candidate. But what's key is they have to be a good fit. And if it is worth waiting for somebody that is going to sit at the top of the recruitment model, that's now absolutely what Chelsea will do. And regardless of whether Bowley keeps the role or not, he will have influence because he's enjoying the role, he's growing in the role. So whether he is involved in recruitment by name or title or just nature, Todd Bowley will have a say in this recruitment model 
permanently, even if he surrenders the title of, at the moment, interim sporting director, which is a very interesting dynamic because he obviously is part of a football department, but he's also your boss, effectively, and the chairman of the football club. So I think that was what Tuchel struggles with. Was he dealing with an interim sporting director? Was he dealing with someone in a football department? Or on Ronaldo, for example, was he being told something by his chairman or his ultimate boss from the ownership group and therefore the board? And that obviously gives Bowley a lot of different cards to play. And many people have criticised him for kind of having a football manager approach. But I think what we're seeing now with the recruitment, as I've always said, is that Bowley's not like that. He's not arrogant or egotistical. He's quite prepared to delegate And we will see that now with all of these different appointments being made. His main role is to step back and look at the club in either recruitment or business from a strategic point of view, from a data point of view. But the day-to-day of negotiations, although he may be involved and it's always nice to play the owner card. Imagine if you're a player or an agent or a club and the owner steps in. And I think this will be even more impactful when he doesn't carry a title that can also help clinch a deal. We look at it from the point of view of a manager clinching a deal by having a personal relationship and courting a player. But so many owners are distant. So if the owner calls you up, if the owner comes into a lower level meeting, that can also have a massive sway and effect as well. And I've said this many, many times that Todd Bowley, having done this role in the long term, even if he doesn't end up doing this role in a few windows time, will be hugely beneficial because how many owners have been in this position where they actually understand the football department? So the experience that Bowley has now will be invaluable, I believe, to Chelsea's model and also the dynamic internally at the football club in the long run. Especially because if you imagine it from this perspective, a football department will often go to the board and say, listen, we can get this player, but they're holding out for this fee. And sometimes an owner will just say, I'm not paying that. That's not value for money because Bowley's been in the thick of it. There may be a scenario where he understands that negotiation and can either step in and get the price that Chelsea want or help at least, or he is just prepared to dig into his pocket with Clear Lake's permission and spend a bit more because he understands the value of a footballer more so than distant owners, including, of course, somebody like Roman Abramovich. Then in terms of the sporting director, individual candidates are still being assessed. Stuart Webber at Norwich is creeping into the mix. And in addition to that, Michael Edwards hasn't gone away. So Edwards has made it abundantly clear to Chelsea that he will not join until his break is over. And I think what people don't realise is that Edwards sees his break as ending after the 2023 summer windows. So it's not a case of just waiting until the summer and therefore having him start in March or April. It's a case of that window would shut. And then ideally for Edwards on September the 1st, he would start a role with a view to January 2024. So it is quite a long wait. And what Chelsea are hoping for is to persuade him to come out of that break earlier, somewhere around April or May, if they pursue that particular route. And the honest truth is, is right now, multiple options are being explored. And part of that is because Bowley is enjoying his role. So imagine if he employs four or five people in different recruitment titles and then still has oversight. He might believe that the department is big enough to allow him to continue. And that gives him the option of waiting for Edwards. But it also gives him the option of saying after January, this is just working. I'm going to do it myself. 
So there's three options, and I know they're obvious options, but it is important to stress that even the incoming candidates to Chelsea do not know what approach they're going to take yet, which tells you that at the time of recording, Chelsea are still undecided. Number one, they get somebody in as a sporting director now, and then who knows, Bowley might give himself a title above the sporting director. Number two is that Bowley does January because they want to wait for Edwards or another candidate. And number three is obviously they just see how it goes in January as they build their model and then they decide whether or not they need to bring in somebody else. So that's the sporting director. It's still very fluid. An appointment is going to take a minimum of weeks and that is under that first scenario if they decide they want someone for January. But in all likelihood, that sporting director will not be imminent. And then with Joe Shields coming on to the co-director of recruitment and talent, that is now, as of late last night, a done deal. And Southampton not happy about it at all. They believe that in conversations over Lavia, the meeting led to personal talks that resulted in this appointment, but that's just normal. And Chelsea don't really have to have much to do with Southampton here because it's also key to stress that when you take a member of staff in this area, he's treated as an employee, not a transfer. So therefore, much like any job, an employee in one position can hold an interview behind his employer's back and then can just give notice. So really, Chelsea's only requirement with Southampton is if they want to try and shorten the notice period. And that may require club-to-club conversations. But Chelsea don't really need to do that much with Southampton. And the pressure on Shields to make a decision, which happened late last night, was down to the fact that Southampton were angry. Chelsea hadn't got an answer in the morning, not formally speaking, but rather than putting pressure on Shields to make up his mind, they were confident that he would agree because they'd obviously held conversations with him and they were just waiting. But Southampton were not happy and they basically banished Shields from the training ground and said, you're gone, right? And they put pressure on him to make up his mind. And that's why it escalated very quickly. And now, as of the time of recording, Ralph Hasenhutl has said that Shields is gone. So he will join Chelsea. We just don't yet officially know the start date and whether he'll be in situ for the January window. But what's really intriguing in all of this is that Shields' title has changed from director of recruitment to co-director of recruitment and talent. And I think that's reflective of the fact that Shields himself wants a bit more of a safety net. He wants other people in a bigger department. So the talent part will still allow him to focus on academy and youth but the recruitment part will mean that he also has senior responsibilities as well. And it looks like Chelsea will bring in three or four others. We don't know the exact titles yet, but if he's a co-director of recruitment and talent, then there'll be another co-director. Ben, and- can I just, sorry to interrupt you quickly, just on that, could the co-director, could the other one be Cole McCauley? Well, I don't think you want to give Kyle McCauley co-director because he's very affiliated to Graham Potter. It's possible, but ultimately there is always a feeling, even though Chelsea think that Graham Potter's going to be there, let's just call it forever, or certainly for a number of seasons, but there's always a feeling that Potter and McCauley are a team. So if Potter goes, McCauley goes. So you could give him that title, but it wouldn't mean anything 
And the last thing you want to do is have a recruitment specialist who's basically the manager's personal recruitment specialist carry a significant strategic title because if the manager goes, it's highly, highly likely that Macaulay will go. So we remain unclear on that at the moment. But what is possible is that the co-director of recruitment and talent, assuming that it's a mirrored title that works alongside Joe Shields, ends up being an internal appointment. But at that stage, I have no more information on that because the title has changed only over the last 24 hours. But what I can tell you is that, and this is why there's been some confusion over Joe Shields, Shields had spoken to Chelsea last week and had a job offer. And then off he went to Glasgow in an official capacity for Southampton. And this is what angered Southampton, that the news broke and Shields is in Glasgow working for Southampton. So, of course, he's got meetings for Southampton and he's very new at Southampton. And suddenly it's out there in the public domain that he's in all likelihood going to join Chelsea, but he's taking meetings in Glasgow on behalf of Southampton. And that was what angered Southampton. And Shields thought long and hard about this. As I understand it, his wife was in tears and it was a very rough 24 hours for Joe Shields because he was not 100% decided. Chelsea's offer was strong, but the nagging doubt was two things. One, he'd been at the City Group and he'd seen a lot of cooks in recruitment and he wanted to be clear what the Chelsea model was and where the lanes were. And two, despite everyone just saying rather glibly, Joe Shields, great record, Sancho, his experience is all in youth really it's only the Southampton role that's seen him significantly transition into senior recruitment so it wasn't so much that he had a doubt over the role offered to him by Chelsea it was more self-doubt about what is right for his career and does he have enough on his CV and specifically senior recruitment or is he going to learn and develop more by staying at Southampton and unfortunately for Shield Southampton didn't give him any thinking time they pretty much and I use this word very loosely, dismissed him or banished him from the football club. And that only solidified his decision that he was going to join Chelsea. But it's very interesting that he's not director of recruitment anymore, which would be construed as a role that sits between youth and senior. He is director of recruitment or co-director and talent. So there's now suddenly a more academy-led or young player-led element to his role. And obviously the titles are not that important at the moment because Chelsea haven't built the model, but that's intriguing that the title has changed in the last 24 to 48 hours. And then with technical director, just very briefly, Vivell obviously left under a very abrupt cloud, if you like, from the Red Bull group and advanced talks continue. So this is an appointment for technical director that Chelsea believe is gonna get done sooner rather than later. And originally they would have liked a double swoop for Freund and Vivelle. And one of the reasons why the Red Bull group fought so hard and put their foot down contractually with Freund was because they realised that Chelsea were looking for a double swoop and maybe more. They were looking for Freund and Vivelle. And then if they got those two, there's then a fair chance that you bring some more junior people over as well. So it was kind of a protection move from the Red Bull group to say no, because with Freund, there was no ability, given he'd only signed, to have a release clause. If Chelsea wanted to wait in a year's time, they could have activated a release clause. But if they wanted Freund imminently, then they'd have had to negotiate with the Red Bull group. 
and the Red Bull group were just not prepared to do that. They were quite happy just to keep him within his contract. And Freund also saw the potential within the Red Bull group to move and didn't want to rock the boat. So he U-turned on his verbal agreement with Chelsea and obviously stayed in his current role. But with Vivelle, I think that there was more of a difference of opinion and strategy. And he saw the offer from Chelsea as just too good to turn down. And this is a pattern I'm hearing, by the way, even from people that haven't taken Chelsea jobs or have been unsuccessful. Almost everyone, which again, coming back to the point I said before about calmness and about structure behind the scenes, despite how it's painted in terms of the public domain, almost everyone I've spoken to personally that's had a conversation about where Chelsea are heading, including Michael Edwards, by the way, has been absolutely blown away by the project and by the offer. They see exactly what Chelsea are trying to build. And that is probably why they are getting a lot of young talent behind the scenes in recruitment, coming to the table, talking to them, being prepared to have a conversation. So you can debate Joe Shields all you like, a really great guy and an excellent spotter of talent. And let's see how he beds into this role, which has more responsibility. And I will see him working at senior level as well. But regardless of the name, just look at the nature of that appointment. That is Chelsea taking somebody that got lured away from Manchester City and had only been in a job for two months. And Chelsea were able to go and make him an offer that turned his head and has now subsequently seen him leave Southampton. So the fact that they've been able to do that, the fact that they've been able to recruit young talent from the Red Bull group, the fact that they almost got Freund, the fact that they are getting in front of people from a whole diverse array of backgrounds. It's a conversation with Campos. It's talks with Orta. It's Leverkusen people. It's Red Bull people. It's young, talented people. It's established people like Campos. The fact that they're all sort of circling and saying, oh, what are Chelsea doing? It obviously tells you that this model they're trying to build is very, very exciting. And there's a number of people from lots of different skill sets and backgrounds. Haven't even mentioned Paul Mitchell at Monaco, who was very keen to get involved as well. They all obviously see behind the scenes. They hear behind the scenes what Chelsea are trying to do. And despite the fact they're all very different, they're all very excited by it. Yeah, exactly. I think my follow-up question to that, Ben, would be, obviously, there's so many roles that Chelsea are looking to do. And I feel like this either goes one or one of two ways. I feel like it goes one way, which I really hope it does, that Chelsea just in the next few years becomes such a dominant force because we've exten extensively scouted these people, these top sort of hires in, in each area. Like you've got Joe Shields, who's an excellent talent spot. You've got a sporting director that will come in and negotiate all the transfers and contracts. You've got Cole McCauley, who can also input, um, you know, what Graham Potter would like in terms of profiles. You've got a technical director who could kind of like, I'd assume that Viva will be around the training ground, sort of speaking to Chelsea players, that kind of thing. Is that true just before I go on? Well, first of all, he's got a sign and then the titles don't, really mean a massive amount at this point but generally speaking a technical director will be more strategic and working multiple windows ahead and then you'll have a variety of other recruitment specialists that are hands-on day-to-day that are working with your academy you'll have data analysts that are trying to help make more of a connection between the academy and the 
first team. So I think the titles can be a bit misleading before the model is actually created. But generally speaking, Boley and or a sporting director sit at the top of the pyramid and then everyone else's roles I would expect within Chelsea's model to be a bit more fluid. But Vivelle is likely, if he's a standard technical director, to be spending a fair amount of time at Coburn, a fair amount of time with senior management, a lot of time looking at data patterns and being part of senior executive decisions by numbers and then using a network of scouts and other people at Chelsea, including the data scientists, to kind of try and project on young talents and what their growth is like. But also the data is used and the technical directors involved in this as well to project on value too. So Chelsea are not only looking to allocate a young talent, which I think is what fans assume that technical directors, scouting directors and sporting directors do. They're also looking to try and work out what they should pay and data can be used for that as well. And a lot of that will take place at Coburn. It's unsung work, it's with mathematicians, but the projection is really, really key to what a technical director does. He has to come in and manage a team that eyes up talent that allocates their value and then obviously also plots with more established talent how Chelsea are going to get them and at what point in the race they're going to enter. And that's another really unsung thing that it's not just about do you want someone, when are you going to go for them? It's about the legwork you put in and it's about when you enter the race. And when you enter the race is also based upon movement within the market. So it's not just about I'm going to make an inquiry for, let's say, Jude Bellingham in two windows time. It's about learning what your rivals are doing. It's about valuing Bellingham and it's about finding out when is the right time to move. And the timing of when you move is as important as whether or not you want a player in the first place in the same way, as I've said many times, that the value of a deal and the structure of a deal equally is important. So I think that's really, really important as well. And naturally, if you know what your rivals are doing, who they're buying, who they're selling, what their financial situation is like, what their goals are, what their strategy is, all of that intel is vital to the timing of when you move and ultimately the success of any transfer. And that is all within a technical director's domain. Yeah, and I, I think just what you described there, like I'm extremely excited to see how this all pans out. And um, just before I get on to my last question, like I guess another follow-up to that would be like, and I know you can't wave a magic wand and just say yes or no, but do you feel like Todd Bowley is not just extensively, you know, scouting people who are ideal for this sort of, um, or the different roles, but he's also extensively scouting their characters because my one concern, Ben, is that if we get three or four appointments, um, you know, like that's, that. I know it's a lot of people and for me, it just feels like they're, well, obviously there's going to be times in any job, but do you think that everyone will be able to kind of like work together? Do you think everyone's being briefed um, on, you know, the, the the same project? Do you think everyone's going to be aligned in this vision that Todd Bowley wants to, wants to bring to Chelsea? Because I feel like Todd Bowley wants to be, you know, that guy eventually that in three or four years time, he can just sit back, let the business run, Chelsea be dominant. And he obviously reaps the rewards from some of it as well. First of all, yeah, great question. And I think the fans love this meme post Bowley's meal with Laporta about Todd Bowley is cooking, but the key question is, <laughs> every day. <laughs> great, great meal, wonderful food every single day, every single time Chelsea are li uh, linked to someone. Yeah. The memes come out, but it's great. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's all very funny, but that is actually a very key question. Is 
Todd Bowley cooking or is he employing too many cooks? And I think Thomas Tuchel's perspective is too many cooks. And I think Chelsea's perspective is you need all of these cooks in order to put on a banquet. And Chelsea are trying to build a model with lots of different courses to continue the food metaphor. So that is why they need so many hires. But ultimately, that is the crux of it. Who is going to do what and how? And not just the model, but the hierarchy over the course of multiple windows is going to be really important. And there will ultimately be a series of wins, but probably teething problems as well. So the first question we need to know is who the hires are. And then Todd Bowley will have to decide whether or not he wants to stay actively involved, strategically involved or not involved at all in the data side, in the negotiation side and generally the football side as well. And I don't think he knows yet, because the truth is, the amount of times we hear, Todd Bowley wants Ronaldo, Todd Bowley likes Mbappe, and so on. <laughs> Honestly, Todd Bowley, and I don't mean this in a critical sense, but Todd Bowley, beyond elite superstars, does not know enough without help from his team about most footballers. So if you accosted Bowley on the street and said, tell me all about Mudrick, or silver at Benfica, I would be surprised if he has that knowledge at this point. But as a senior leader, as an excellent businessman, as an ambitious entrepreneur, and ultimately as a team-orientated person, he'll be briefed. And that's perfectly normal. And by the way, it's exactly the same with a lot of other sporting directors and politicians as well, that when they walk into a meeting, they are reliant on different people in their team to hand them the information. And the skill is not necessarily in being a know-it-all. The skill is in being able to use the information from your know-it-alls. And that is what makes a team and a model. And if you approach it like, I must know everyone, I must have autonomy, I want this, I want that then you're not running a business. So you take on board the perspective of the data, you take on board the perspective of your marketing department, you take on board the perspective of your manager, and then you aggregate it all together to make a decision by numbers. So Bowley shouldn't be seen as a figure of autonomy who suddenly just wants Mbappe. He's being empowered by a variety of different people. And what's probably exciting to Bowley is that he's learning more knowledge day by day by day, which is why it wouldn't surprise me if he wants to stay involved in a hands-on capacity for as long as he possibly can. But there will be teething problems because it's a lot of new hires and more are to come, particularly on the recruitment side. Chelsea are revamping their medical department, their recruitment department. They will revamp their stadium. They have revamped their board. They've changed their manager. It's not going to happen overnight. So the fact that they've returned to winning ways, the fact that it looks like they'll get out their Champions League group now, the fact that they've got Graham Potter and hired him quickly, all bode well. But there's a lot of work to do. And we might see Bowley take on board one project like recruitment now. And then once things settle, he might be more like chairman and say, okay, what do I have to do as chairman now on the business side in order to bring another department up to speed? And then he might jump to another department and say, okay, now I'm going to oversee commercial for a little bit, not necessarily by title, but that is the flexibility that he's got because he's chairman. He is a minority owner. He represents effectively from an operational sense, along with Glick and Egg Barley, the club at large. So he can transition into different areas and it's common sense 
as they've done in the first 100 days, but he'll do this beyond to take an active interest. Because if you're a distant owner, you don't really know what's going on. So I suppose what I would say is don't judge anything on titles or names, because I believe that Bowley and Egbali will remain accountable for now, regardless of what title they carry. And then over time, as the model builds, we'll get a clearer sense of who does what. Because I've been in football for many years, but I cannot tell you specifically what a co-director of recruitment and talent does, simply because who's the other co-director? What does talent mean? Why isn't it a director of recruitment? What's the relationship like with the technical director? Who's the sporting director? What are the other four hires? What does Neil Bath do? And what does Carl McCauley do? How does Bowley fit in? How does Egbali fit in? Are they going to negotiate? Are they going to employ a chief scout, which is ultimately quite a defunct position now? Or are they just going to use a series of scouts? So if you look at Liverpool, for example, you've got Baz Hunter, who's the chief scout. It's a great position, but there's not many of them left. So what direction are they going to head in there? And then when they make the final decision, who has the authority and the autonomy? How many people are on that committee when they finally make a decision? Is it three? Is it five? Is it 10? Is it all of them? And are they going to add separation for dispassion? And that's really interesting as well. So people listening might not quite understand this, but if you look at baseball and if you look at Liverpool as an example, the way the hierarchy works is that they'll employ only a mathematician, only a scientist and only a scout at the lower end. And each of them will be tasked with very linear things to do that build a perspective. And then from there, they will then aggregate that information to a mid-level and the chief scout will start to look at that and some other senior figures. And then they'll look at the bigger picture and it raises up the hierarchy. And then finally, a transfer committee will make a decision, which means that your data analyst is not necessarily being asked to work with the technical director and make a subjective decision. They're literally being asked to look at players' numbers. And they may not even know who the players are. They may just be looking to process numbers and create algorithms to judge marginal gain metrics that could be the difference. So to your point earlier about what's the personality like of somebody working at a club or playing for a club, this is what Liverpool do. They go and sit in the away end at a game and they talk to hardcore fans about a player in the middle of nowhere in a third round FA Cup game in, let's just say, Torquay. And the reason they do it is to go under the radar, but also because that perspective is one that could create a marginal gain. What does an ultra fan of Liverpool that's prepared to go all the way up to Torquay think? So let's sit next to them. And then when the player loses the ball, what's the reaction of the fan base? Who do they vilify? Who do they hero? How does the player respond to when they lose the ball? Does their head go down? Do they care? What are they like in an FA Cup third round game away from home when they're an elite level player and they're thrown into the mix when the team's 4-0 up? Do they give a damn? Are they as full-blooded in tackles? And Liverpool, but other clubs as well, score these things in a variety of ways to create metrics that other clubs aren't using. So again, Bowley wants to do that 
He wants to be able to create a team that looks at things dispassionately and passionately, looks at things on gut instinct and data, has a projective element to see how a player might develop in terms of value. Look at things like injury prevention, which is going to be very topical at the moment with Chelsea, with Kante, Fafana, and now Reese James all picking up injuries that are likely to see them not play again this year. So that is Bowley's thinking, but how you translate that into specific hires and what job title you give them is very fluid. So once again, don't judge it on the title, judge it on how the model materializes, I would say, over the next one to five transfer windows because they're in this for the long game. Yeah, and I want you guys down below um, when I post this out on Twitter to let me know Based on what Ben is saying, do you think we're going to have too many cooks in the kitchen? Or do you think like me and feel like there's potentially something very, very exciting and special that Todd Bowley is going to build? Now, Ben, I want to go on to the last question before we wrap up the episode. We've currently got five minutes until four. I'm not sure if you can go over. If you can, great. Um, but if not, just answer more shortly. But yeah, um, the last question we've got is obviously around the relentless recruitment drive for top talent. Obviously, we're seeing with appointments as well. This is set to continue. But I guess the question is, how long can it continue without reverting to perhaps... I don't know, a Liverpool model where they don't spend as much, but they may get one key player window like a Darwin Nunes. Or do you feel like Todd Bowley wants to go hand in hand with making money, uh, you know, increasing revenue and also just going like not crazy every transfer window? But I do remember you told me that um, you thought that Chelsea could well within their rights spend at least another like you thought if I'm right I'm pretty sure you said this that you thought that Chelsea could spend 250 million last window maybe 250 million in the summer so just um your answer on that and also because I know a lot of followers are asking potential targets for January and the summer Jude Bellingham Raphael Liao um a few fans are asking about like right back situation do you think Chelsea would dip into that? Um, and also maybe Romeo Lavia, you know, the, the midfield situation. So if you want to just all try and wrap that into one last answer, that would be great, Ben. Yeah, five minutes to talk about the whole transfer strategy could be a challenge, but don't worry. Fear not, <laughs> I can overrun a little bit. So first of all, money-wise, Chelsea are comfortably within financial fair play and the Premier League's profit and sustainability. So if next window they choose to spend 200 to 250 million, that is very much within their financial boundaries. And the other consideration is just whether by that summer they feel the need to do that. And I think this is the irony of a model that works and recruitment that works, the better you succeed in building a foundational model around recruitment, the less you have to spend. So I think fans look at things in terms of which elite level player do we want to sign? And I think Chelsea look at things as when we need a marquee name, we'll move. But ideally, you learn that name as marquee because they come through the Chelsea hierarchy. And that is what good clubs do. They buy a player that is either unknown and young or relatively known, but not necessarily elite. And they turn them into the type of player that other clubs strive after and they don't have to spend the same amount on them. So that is the sustainability within the model. It's not really about every window 
can we just spend loads and loads and loads? Because the truth is, even if you got all the players you wanted in every window, something would be wrong. Because look at it in these terms. If you are largely focusing on players that are under the age of 25 years of age and the elite level players that you want are a minimum of 50 million and some of them are 150 million, if every single summer or window you're linked with all these players and or you're buying all of these players, then where is the longevity and the chemistry and the success of your squad? Once you've got four or five players under the age of 25, plus the core already at the football club, and you might need three, even five windows to do that, you should have a core team able to succeed for the best part of five to seven seasons. And then if a opportunistic name like a Bellingham or an Mbappe comes up, of course, that's where, because you're in profit and sustainability or financial fair play, you can move. But Chelsea should not, if their model is succeeded, just be spending for the sake of spending it or constantly adding marquee names because if they succeed in their model, they simply won't need them, even if they are good players. Whereas right now, I think the fan base looks at the squad and they clearly see that another striker would be beneficial. They wouldn't turn down a creative-minded player, especially if Hakim Ziyech or Christian Pulisic was to depart. Clearly, the midfield needs refreshing and rejuvenating and strengthening, especially with Kante's injury. But regardless of that, Kante and Jorginho could easily go and younger players are needed in that position. And because of the injury to Reese James, but also even in central defence, despite Fafana's arrival, you could argue that a wing-back and even another centre-back is needed because Thomas Tuchel ultimately wanted a, another centre-back regardless of Fafana. And then in the goalkeeper position, let's just see what happens. If we'd have spoken at the beginning of the summer, there was a possibility that Kepa could have joined Napoli and Chelsea would have needed a backup goalkeeper or a keeper to compete with Mendy. But now... There's absolute competition in that position. But my point is that when I outline it like that, and with Christiansen and Rudiger going, and obviously Lukaku on loan to Inter, there's just a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of holes. But if we flash forwards through January and next summer, Chelsea may well be happy with what they've got. And then at that point, they won't need to spend as much. But yet the short answer, not that I ever give one, is that 250 million very much within Chelsea's budget for next summer, depending, of course, on what they choose to spend in January as well. I don't think they could have 250 million to 300 million last summer, 250 million in January, 250 million next summer. But I think if you combine January and next summer, then somewhere around the 350 to 400 million is not unthinkable and is certainly within profit and sustainability and financial fair play from Chelsea's perspective. So then with that context, if we look at different targets, Nkunku very close and there's full expectation at Chelsea's end that that one will get done after the secret medical somewhere near Frankfurt. Liao still very much on the radar, more so than ever, I would say, because Graham Potter and Carl McCauley are big, big fans. So I would expect Chelsea to make a ploy for Liao and they've held a number of talks behind the scenes with Milan already. And it's all just going to come down to whether or not Milan 
can get Liao to sign a new deal. And I just don't think they'll be able to match the terms. And I understand that Liao's head has been turned by a move ben, to the Premier League. Uh, ben, I was going to ask as well about Liao. I wonder if Todd Bowley and Bedad had a little nil during those uh, during those games where we where we played AC Milan. I hope so. <laughs> well, I mean, they had coffee during the Stamford Bridge leg, if you like. And then over in Milan, they received a very warm and reciprocal reception. So there's a very strong possibility that if Chelsea choose to move on Liao, they won't have any problems in terms of having Milan able to smoothly negotiate with them. But that doesn't mean much at this stage because Milan's aim is not to get a great deal from Chelsea. Milan's aim is to keep Liao at Milan. So unlike Nkunku, that one can't be classified as advanced or a done deal yet. But what we can say on that is that it's high on the list of Chelsea's priorities, but for the right price. And I think that's important because if they walk away from Liao, it will be because the price is just too crazy. So Bowley is not necessarily spending for the sake of spending. And he's learned his lesson, I think, the hard way on that because earlier during his tenure at Chelsea, I think that's exactly what Bowley did. So for all of the excitement about the window... I think it is fair to say that there's not a single person I've spoken to outside of Chelsea and senior recruitment that thinks that Kukurea is value for money at 62 million. Virtually everyone in the mix, including, of course, Manchester City, valued him at half of that. And that is not necessarily great from Chelsea's perspective, even if, by the way, Kukurea turns into a 60-plus million player and is a massive success because what you don't want as a club is it out there in the market that you were prepared to pay that high above the odds because it damages you in future negotiations and this again is why Chelsea were adamant after that that Fafana was nowhere near a world record because they don't want it out there in the market that they're the club that pays above the odds Rafinha they made an exceptional offer so suddenly agents are rubbing their hands with glee, selling clubs are rubbing their hands with glee. And then when you go to try and get delete or ultimately even Liao, look at the price you're being quoted. It's the Chelsea tax, if you like. So they do need to be very careful about that, that they prove themselves to be tough negotiators in the market. And right now, I think Chelsea are being very sensible with Liao, or they certainly were towards the end of the last window. They walked away because they realised that were they to succeed, they would be paying a crazy, crazy amount of money and they just weren't prepared to do that. So still a target and let's see. And then there's a number of other names. I think that Bellingham is newer into the mix, but... As I understand it, Liverpool, Real Madrid are still the front runners. So let's see whether or not Chelsea seriously enter that race. I think they'd be wise to if they can get a marquee signing of that ilk. But it's going to really be defined on what happens in January because Bellingham is highly, highly likely to go in the summer of 2023. And Dortmund's tactic, if they can pull it off, and it is a big if, is they want Bellingham to sign a new deal. And in doing so, they protect the sell-on value, which suddenly means that you might have to find 110 to 130 million for Bellingham instead of 85 at the very, very lowest bargain end to 95. 
and that may affect the suitors that are interested in signing him. But with Bellingham, it's not just about the price. Everyone will connect Chelsea with Bellingham and say they're going to pay a massive amount. They're going to provide great payment terms to Dortmund. But Real Madrid have put in the legwork. They've sold Bellingham the dream. Liverpool have visited him and his family many times. And as with Haaland, and Manchester City are in the race, by the way, for Bellingham as well. In fact, Haaland's told Bellingham he should join Man City. But players these days are also using data and they're scoring their move. And they're asking clubs sometimes to provide them with pitches and presentations. So it's sort of reversed in a bizarre way with elite level talent. You're not going to the player and just saying, we'll pay you loads, come and join us. And then going to the club and saying, here's a ton of money. The players are saying, pitch to me. And then they're going back and they're scoring it. Haaland joined Manchester City because he dispassionately scored and he created a lot of different columns, if you like, probably with his advisors on some spreadsheet. And he said, right, let's score the city. Let's score the wages. Let's score the team. Let's score the training facilities. Let's score the house they're offering. If that's part of any package, let's score the sign on fee. And then who wins? And it just helps the players when they can't decide and they've got a lot of suitors work out where to go. So when you have already for months and months and months with a Bellingham, got family buy-in, introduced him in a WhatsApp group to young players his age. If the player, not obviously the case with Bellingham, but just to give you a more general example, if the player doesn't speak English, have you told them we'll give you a personal tutor if the player's young and has an interest in education or socially conscious activations or commercial work on the side to build their own brand have you given them help with that are you going to media train them and I think people take these things for granted but Liverpool give a clear sense and so do Real of culture which means that way out the manager can talk to you the if you're a younger player academy chief can talk to you you can make friends you maybe a paid to visit under the pretense of a holiday and you get a tour of the facilities and Chelsea are miles behind in all of these areas from the old regime. So this is something that Bowley wants to improve. So you can't rule out Bellingham or Declan Rice either. At the moment, I think Rice is a more realistic possibility than Bellingham, but uh, both are loosely speaking on Chelsea's radar. And of course they are because they're both top, top players. And then Edson Alvarez is still there as well. Maybe for January, Zakaria hasn't worked out. Chelsea would like to bring in a defensive midfielder. And the advantage of Alvarez is that he can play centre-back as well. He's 6'2", he's composed on the ball, he's been capped by his country and he wanted the move in January, which is why he didn't train on deadline day. But Ajax's board were absolutely clear that that move wouldn't happen. But as I understand it, towards the end of the window, Bowley and the recruitment team intimated to Alvarez and his people that Chelsea would be back. So with Zakaria not working out and not getting any game time at the moment, that is one to watch as well. And then Vardio can't be discounted either. So they're not going to get all of them, but these are the kind of names as a spillover almost from the last window that Chelsea are still looking at. And then naturally, as new names come in, as Potter comes in, as Macaulay inputs, there will be other surprise names and new names over the course of the coming weeks. It wouldn't remotely surprise me if his form continues, especially if there are some outgoings and even with Mount at the club, if Chelsea starts to consider somebody like a James Madison. And I think that if Pulisic and or Ziyech were to leave, 
he could still play with Mount because Madison is a very versatile kind of player. He can play centrally and he can play wide as well. So I'm hearing growing rumblings about Chelsea, at least considering a player like James Madison. And then they'll look at strikers, more out and out strikers, in my opinion, probably next summer. And even with an Nkunku arriving, more of like a target player especially if Aubameyang doesn't stay at the club. And depending on what happens with Broya and his development too, I still think that they're short in a kind of old-fashioned striker sense. So that is one to watch as well. And then just a final thing to tell you, uh, Caicedo at the moment, there's nothing in it. So that sounds quite bizarre because Potter really likes the player, but I think that Chelsea are going to wait on that one, certainly in January, and see his development as he plays more week in, week out Premier League football. And the other thing, by the way, with Caicedo is just quite a complicated agent situation. So the last thing to say is that Chelsea don't really want to be doing these agent heavy deals. They don't want to be dealing with a variety of different representatives. They don't want to be paying a variety of knock-on fees. You suddenly sign a player and you owe three or four different clubs money or lots of different agents lay claim to the representation. And that's been the problem with Caicedo throughout the course of his career. It's not an easy deal to pull off. That's why Liverpool walked away a few years back before he joined Brighton. So I don't think there's anything at the moment with Caicedo to Chelsea, but it's certainly one to watch because Graham Potter knows him better than most. But that's also a word of warning on Joe Shields as well, because Shields has had a habit at Southampton of involving too many agents in deals. And sometimes you have to with youth, but this was a problem at Manchester City as well. And Chelsea want to move away from this and they haven't really in the last window. Bowley's had to lean on a lot of agents and therefore fees. Shields at Southampton because of the transition from youth to senior recruitment and naturally having a bit of a baptism of fire had to do the same to get senior recruitment deals. He had to bring on board a lot of agents and just wait until the figures are released. You'll see last window that Southampton have used a lot more agents and had to spend a lot of money. So that is going to be key as to how Chelsea approach their recruitment. There's Bowley meeting a lot of agents and it will come ultimately with a lot of payments. There's Shields at Southampton meeting a lot of agents as he transitions into senior football and having to spend a fair amount of money as well from what I gather. And Chelsea really would be very sensible to move away from that. And unfortunately with Caicedo, it's exactly the same as well. You can't do the deal even if the value of the deal is a little bit lower and it won't now be with Caicedo because he's burst onto the scene. I mean, Graham Potter's on record as saying even though it was a bit jokingly that he's like a hundred million pound player. So suddenly you're not getting Caicedo cheap and it's a very complicated situation with the agent and any fees owed to clubs outside of Brighton in terms of sell on value. So I think that's a very problematic deal for any club. And as I understand it, Chelsea are not making Caicedo a priority at this stage, certainly not for January, but can never be discounted because obviously Potter knows all the Brighton players more than most. But that's my understanding as things stand. But when January opens, we're going to get a circus around Chelsea, as we've seen with Newcastle as well, and even more so with the mid-season World Cup, because naturally anyone that does well at that World Cup is going to be speculated about. Yeah, I think, um, as you said there, James Madison, I think he's one of the most underrated players in the Premier League. I know you're a Leicester fan and um, 
yeah, he could be a fantastic signing for Chelsea. So hopefully that does come to fruition in the next months. And um, yeah, I think, as you said earlier, you know, Chelsea don't want to be seen as that club that plays over the odds. And I think Todd Bowley probably realises that kind of in the summer. It gave me early days of like Roman vibes throw the cash about, get the deal done, no messing about. But I think with Sporting Director coming in with maybe more negotiation skills and a, and a, and a calmer head maybe will, will help us pay some more realistic prices. But yeah, we're still going to have to pay big for certain players like a Jude Bellingham. But anyway, Ben, thanks so much for joining me this episode. I know we have overrun, but honestly, one of the most in-depth funds. Yeah, you're just one of the most articulate people I've spoken to. So thanks so much for joining me. Is there any socials you want to plug towards the end of this episode otherwise we'll wrap up just at jacobs ben if you want to follow me on twitter obviously keep an eye out on any cbs output if you're in america we've got cbs sports hq champions league Serie A rights cbs sports golasso for the professional handles on behalf of cbs we've got lots of great talent fabrizio romano is contracted to al k golasso podcast for i believe two a week or that's what he's been doing anyway over the last few weeks and who knows whether that will expand during the January transfer window but keep an eye out for any official news there and obviously we've got a number of other great news breakers whether it's Jules Lorraine or Guillaume Balaguer that can give you excellent perspective on different Chelsea bits of news and then Thierry Henry and Mika Richards and Jamie Carragher forming our studio crew. And what's really cool is for the first time, 25th, 26th of October, if you're listening and you're in America, we're live in Brooklyn at a venue called Pier 2. So we're doing all of our Champions League studios on those two nights. Chelsea are the early game, I believe, from Pier 2 in a very kind of public domain. Can't tell you too much more about it at this stage, but just keep an eye out if you're in America. Tickets actually sold out in about five minutes when we were live and we made them on sale, but there is a waiting list. So if you're in the New York area, feel free to add yourself to that waiting list. You will see how, if you just check out our header on CBS Sports Golasso on Twitter, and it should just be a really great two evenings and a whole lot of fun. And we're also promoting the NWSL championship final as well. So just wanted to shout out that if you happen to be in the New York area and to you personally, just keep up the good work. Always enjoy coming on the show. Always happy to talk to the Chelsea fan base. And it's exciting times. Yeah, very exciting times. And I know I've got a few um, American followers. So if you guys are listening and you are in that area, please go and enter that waiting list. I'm sure that'll be a great event. But Ben, thanks once again for joining me. Guys, if you have enjoyed this episode, leave a rating on Spotify. I think we're one or two away from getting five-star ratings up to 50, 60 ratings. So that's really, really good. I'll try and make these podcasts more regular, but obviously getting guests on, the type of guests like Ben I want to get on. Ben is always very kind and comes on and replies very fast, but... You know, others, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. But yeah, guys, thanks for listening and we will see you in the next one.